this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. The Apostle Peter challenges us to be ready to give an explanation for the hope that's within us. I don't really even think we need that challenge, do we? I mean, really, when was the last time anyone asked you to explain your hope? What's different about your hope from anybody around you? And does it even matter in the first place? Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Full stop. I'm going to say it again. You and I must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Period. You and I must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. What does this mean? What does it look like to worship Christ? Does it mean that we gather together in a semi-dark room one hour a week and we sing some songs and some of us lift our hands? Is that what that means? You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. There's a, a big clue here in this word right here as the Lord of your life. What is the Lord? What is the Lord of a life? It's somebody who owns it all. It's somebody who reserves the right to have full control all the time over every aspect of everything about you. The Lord is somebody whose you are. You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Do you and I live as if he's actually the Lord of our life? Do we live as if he's the Lord of our summer? Maybe I should ask you this way. Have we planned our summer around him? Or have we worked him into our summer as it is convenient for us? I told you I was going to hit you kind of hard. But Peter goes on and he says this. He says, if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So when someone sees you living this way, they're going to ask you, what is the deal with you? Everybody else planning their own summer around their own things and working all their side interests in whenever they can. But you have something different going on. Whenever someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Here's the tough question. It's the first blank on your page. When was the last time someone asked you about your hope? When was the last time someone was so addled by the hope that you have, that you live, that you demonstrate every day, that they were like, dude, what is it with you? When was the last time somebody actually asked you? We have a biblical mandate to be ready to answer a question that it seems like nobody's really asking us. Something's wrong here. Is it God's word or is it me? Let me skip to another passage. 
Mark tells us this story in Mark 12. Jesus sat down near the collection box of the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Okay, this is a great offering strategy. So from now on, on Sundays, I'm going to have Aaron dress up as Jesus. And as that basket gets passed, I'm just going to have him walk down the aisle with the basket <laughs> doing this. You know, I'm looking, I'm watching you. And that's a great offering strategy. Is that okay? Will you do that for me? Jesus is watching you give. <laughs> so Jesus is watching. I wonder, I, wonder, I wonder what the expression was on Jesus' face. I wonder what kind of things are going through his head as he's watching. You know, it says many rich people put in large amounts. So you got the guys opening up their wallet and taking out wads of cash, folding it up, you know, real good for everybody to see and, you know, making a big deal about putting it in the collection box. Person after person comes in and they, and they drop some bling for God in the temple. And Jesus sits and watches. Hmm. You know this story. Something happens next. Then, Mark says, a poor widow, someone who doesn't have wads of cash, someone who doesn't have a fat wallet, someone who doesn't have a husband and therefore has lost everything. She's lost the love of her life. She's lost the relationship that she came to depend on to protect and provide for her. She's lost her ability to generate significant income in that society. She has practically nothing. She is a sorrowful, probably a mourning, poor widow. And she came in and she dropped in two small coins. Can you imagine that? You're watching this act that everybody's doing with the folded bills, you know, dropping it in there, and you gotta follow that with your two coins. Think two pennies. King James calls them the widow's mites. A while back, Justin Chadwick gave me some of these, and I'm not sure who left these for me this morning. Thank you. Um, but here's some authentic pennies from that time from the Holy Land. They're smaller than even, you probably can't see them for you are. They're tinier than even pennies. They, these things would not even clink when you drop them in the box. They're just little bitty nothings almost. So you got all these people coming in with these wads of folded cash and she's plink, dropping her silent little coins in. And then something strange happens. Jesus, who's been sitting and watching all this, Look what happens. Jesus calls his disciples to him. Come here, guys, 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 guys. You got to see this. Come here. All of a sudden, Jesus is talking. And he says this to the disciples. I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who were making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. In other words, not just a part of their income, a part of the surplus of their income a fraction, something insignificant. 
You know, they, they worked in their side interest. They, they had enough to do everything they wanted to do, and then they kind of worked God into their budget where they could. They gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. This woman actually had hope within her. I'm not, I'm not talking about tithing. I'm not talking about giving money to the church. That's a whole other sermon, and we probably ought to talk about that because Jesus talked about it a lot, including right here, a whole lot, including right here. But that's not what I'm talking about here. This woman did something amazing that got a response from Jesus. All the big folded cash things, no response. Jesus just watches. But all of a sudden, when this widow gives all she can give, she gives out of faith. She gives because she hopes in something more than what's in her checking account, more than what's in her wallet, more than what's in her purse. She actually has hope that her treasure is not here. She actually has hope that her treasure is in something else, something better, someone greater. She has hope within her. Yeah, praise the Lord for this faith testimony. The point isn't about exactly how much you are giving. The point is that Jesus loves and calls out faith-filled risk for the glory of God. He loves it. He calls it out. He points to it. This kind of risking, hope-based risking, makes Jesus respond. I wonder, I wonder if we don't sometimes have a hard time seeing a response from Jesus in our life because we're not living a life that generates a response from Jesus. Is that harsh? Is that hard to say, is that wrong? I mean, here I, I see Jesus responding to this shockingly hopeful risk that this woman was taking. I wonder, I wonder if she dropped those in wondering where her next meal was going to come from. I wonder if she dropped those in knowing that she had kids to feed. I wonder if she dropped those in knowing the rent is due next week. And she <laughs> let go and let God. Dude, that's hope. That's hope right there. So I wonder, I wonder why nobody asks us about the hope that's in us. And I think it's probably because most of us don't live a life of hope-filled risk for Jesus. Because most of us, our lives don't boast of Christ. Our summer doesn't boast of Christ. Most of us, frankly, live our Christian life as if Jesus was just a religious side interest. We pursue all the everything that we're always pursuing and we work him in as best as we can. We hope in all the things that this world has to offer, but we don't actually hope 
in him. I think the reason people don't ask us is the next blank on your page. It's because we hope in all the same things as the world. I think we hope we, our lives are generally as Christians indistinguishable from the lost life next to us. You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Full stop. Because he owns you. He is the Lord of you. He bought you with a price. Am I right? I mean, he bought you because you you were having your hope all in your own life and what you and I discovered, you and I were all here one day. There was that day where we realized that all the things we were putting our hope in was really just hopelessness. There was a day, you remember that day? There was a day when the Holy Spirit just tugged on your heart and said, said to you, you're putting your hope in all the wrong things and it's mostly just you. It's mostly just you that you're trusting in. You're trusting in yourself, your way, the things you know, the things you're used to. You're putting your hope in all the wrong things. We realized that we were really nothing more than rebellious criminals against a holy God that day. Do you remember that day? And so we were, that day, there was that day, right? Where the Holy Spirit has got you and he convicted you that you were a sinner destined for hell under the judgment of God, but that God loved you so much that he sent his son to buy you back. You were designed to look like him, act like him, live like him. You were designed in his image to represent him and you and I screwed it all up. And so he sends Jesus to go to the cross and to pay the price for your sin there to buy you back and set you right once again, to restore the image of God in you by living his life in and through you. Remember that day? Do you remember that day? Are you awake today? <laughs> Is anyone grateful for that day in your life? Okay. I was worried for a minute there. You see, because you and I have nothing to live for if not for that day. If it wasn't for that day in my life, the only thing I would have is, is me. The only thing I would have is the world around me. So I'd be putting my faith in, you know, our government or our economy or just the basic goodness of our nation. I'd be relying on my own strength and my own ability. I'd be putting all my hope in a crumbling basket, disintegrating before all of our very eyes. Am I right? We were hopeless but he has placed his hope inside of you. If Christ is in you, then you have hope just like that widow has. It's in you, it's in there. You believe that your life is about something much better, something much greater, that your treasure is not actually here, but it's actually in someone. 
and that it changes your life here forever. That's who you are designed to be. And I know, I know that's hard to swallow for some people. I know that doesn't make sense for some of your neighbors. My good friend David Lynn, who by the way is recovering, he's had pneumonia recently. He was in the hospital for a few days uh, and he's back home now. He's on the slow road back to recovery. Thank you for praying for him. I'm sure he'd appreciate a, a message from you. Uh, he's, he's a great guy, but he's got some friends. He's got some friends, some neighbors of his. That this, this, this hope within us makes no sense to them at all. They can't see it. They can't understand it. It's just not clicking with them. And it's because of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. I know we've looked at this, this little passage every week for the past few weeks, but here's, here's what he says. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. It's just foolishness. You don't get it until you get it. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. To those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God, the, the foolish plan is to sacrifice his son on your behalf. This foolish plan, the gospel, is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. I know it's hard to understand because the bills still come in every day, right? The tax bill, the electric bill, the rent is due, the car payment's due, insurance. I mean, it, they keep coming and the drama keeps happening. Am I right? Camp people, the drama keeps happening. Did you have drama at camp? Yes, there's drama at camp. I always loved camp, but I hated the drama that comes with it. And it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. And so what happens is we get our eyes fixed on the wrong things. And before you know it, we've placed our hope in worldly solutions to worldly problems. It's hard to understand. And what we end up doing is we end up giving our summer away to all the wrong things and working God in where we think he belongs that, you know, hour on Sunday morning. But I got news for you. Your vacation will come and go. Our Israel trip tomorrow, it'll come tomorrow and then it'll be gone by the next Wednesday. It's going to come and go. Your summer is going to come and go. The day of the pool is going to come and go. The time with your family, it's going to come and go. But this summer your family's eternity may just very well be at stake. Your kid's eternity may very well be at stake. I promise you the health and well-being of those kids out there at Tower Road, those hungry kids may just well be at stake. The addiction recovery for a lot of our brothers and sisters right here in our community may just be at stake. What I'm trying to say is, next blank on your page, there's more to this than just summer. There's more to this than June, July, August. There's more to this than your schedule, your vacation, your preferences, your time off. There's more to this than summer. Paul, speaking to 
slaves. Says this as he writes to Titus. He says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See how I highlighted the word adorn there? I really want to I want to talk about this for a second. He's talking to slaves, and he's not here. A lot of people accuse Paul of condoning slavery here. That's not his point. He's not saying that I think slavery is a really good thing and you should enslave people. He's just saying no matter where you find yourself, if you find yourself at the top of the food chain or at the bottom of the food chain, you live your life in a godly way. You live your life as if you actually had hope that no matter how bad it sucks here, I'm living for something better. I'm living for something more. This life may be awful on me, but I'm living for something else. I got something else coming. He's saying, live your life that way uh, so that whatever you do may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. What, what is, I mean, if you, could, if you could sum up the term doctrine of God, our Savior in one word, what would that word be? The doctrine of our Savior is the gospel. Very good, Janet Crawford. You go to the front seat on the airplane. <laughs> it, for a very big cost. Yeah, you have to pay a lot of money to do that. Yeah. So the doctrine of God is the gospel. So the purpose that we live for is to adorn the gospel, to adorn the gospel, our Lives are not the gospel. Our work is not the gospel. We do what we do to adorn the gospel, to show how beautiful it really is. What this means is that we are not the beautiful woman. We are the diamond necklace on the neck of the beautiful woman. You know, she doesn't wear the necklace for the necklace's sake. She wears the necklace so that it can draw out her own beauty and be seen by everybody. That's what we do. We adorn the gospel in the way that we take hope-filled risk in our lives. My life is here. Your life is here to make beautiful the gospel. So we don't hoard summer to ourselves. We live as if we had hope in something better. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says this. He says, uh, Sherry, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Is that what he says? No. She's smiling, but she doesn't mean it. Make it your goal to live a quiet life minding your own business drama camp people and working with your hands just as we instructed you before then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others so is he saying keep your head down and keep quiet no what he's saying is you work hard at making sure that you are who you're supposed to be that you are living the life he's called you to live because when you do that then they will respect you 
and you will not need to depend on others. He's saying, look, don't put your junk off on other people. All that does is distract from the gospel. It distracts people from the God that you're here to glorify. When you are airing out all of your junk for everybody else, when everybody knows your business, when everybody sees that you're um, not working, but you are relying on other people to get you by, when, when you're lazy, when you're irresponsible, dude, that's a distraction from the gospel. You are glorifying self. Even in the negative, you're glorifying self. You're holding yourself up for all to see when your role is to disappear and glorify God. You want to remove all obstacles from people seeing Christ. This is why, this is why, this is why our, our tech team and our, our worship team they gather together every week on Thursday and they spend time that they don't have practicing. And they run through song after song. They run through a bunch of times. If you come here on Thursday, you'll hear them play through part of the song and go, oh, no, no, let's do it this way. Oh, let's change that. Let's work on this. Oh, I need to practice that part. And when you come on Thursday, it doesn't always sound like a coherent, worshipful set. It's a little bit of a rough mess on Thursday nights. And then they gather together again on Sunday mornings and they, they get here darn early. Uh, they're here probably before some of y'all, especially second service, get up in the morning. And they, they work through it together again on Sunday morning before anybody even arrives for worship. And I promise you, nobody on the stage does that because they want to show off how good they are no matter what color of pale blue their guitar is. Look at that guitar right there. Do you see that? Guitar, pale blue, baby blue, is that what it is? Okay, baby blue, whatever, yeah, it's cool, it's cool. That's a cool guitar right there. Uh, so they're not out to show you how great they are. Here's what they're doing. They're, they're smoothing out all the rough spots because if they got up here and played cold on Sunday morning, you would not be worshiping God. You'd be going, what is going on here? This is all, these people are bad at this. Why are they so bad? And your focus would be on them and not on God. But they practice and they smooth out all the wrinkles because they're removing all the obstacles so that you aren't here in this room thinking about them. You're thinking about the fact that he is good and you're worshiping him. That's what they're doing. That's what this is talking about. Remove all obstacles. So if you're a car salesman, and you're crooked about it. That's an obstacle. If you're a husband and you're unfaithful, that's an obstacle. If you are a wife and you have anger issues, that's an obstacle. If you have a summer vacation and you've planned around it instead of planning it around what God wants you to do, that's an obstacle. And your goal and my goal should be to remove all obstacles, to adorn the gospel. In other words, next blank on your page, my work, my risk adorns the gospel. I, I, I keep trying to figure out a really great way to describe this, and I can't think of a good crystallized way, but I can't think of a better way than my good friend Art Brown. You may or may not know Art. Uh, he goes to church here, and he was here in the first service, sitting right back over here in the corner. 
He's in my mom and dad's life group, and he has risked his summer for the glory of God in a powerful way. And I just had some time this week to sit down and interview him on camera so that he could tell you a little bit about how that works in his life. So here's Art. Uh, hello, I'm Art Brown, and uh, uh, we've lived here in LOJ uh, about a year and a half. Uh, we lived for about 28 years in Pickens County, and previous to that, we lived in Morningside in Atlanta. Uh, my professional career for almost 45 years has been in supply chain management. I previously managed supply chains uh, out of Asia, and uh, most recently one out of Central America for a coffee company. Uh, I have retired, but I still consult in supply chain management. In 2020, I became involved with Samaritan First uh, on domestic uh, disaster recovery. The way I, I became associated with Samaritan's Purse was in uh, work that I did domestically. And in the United States, when you're part of Samaritan's Purse working on disaster recovery, uh, it's typically in tornadoes or in hurricanes. Uh, I had worked part of a chainsaw group uh, out of Noonan, and I had mentioned to one of the uh, supervisors there that, that I had extensive supply chain experience. And he said that, that he had just read a note from DART, which is their disaster assistance response team. It's the international version of Samaritan's Purse that they needed logistics people because when they uh, arrived at a disaster, a very a uh, few times did they have the infrastructure they needed to deliver the food, the water, the medicines needed to, to do that. So in 2021, I joined the DART team, which is their International Disaster Assistant Response Team. I went through about a two-month screening process, which was probably one of the most rigorous screening processes I've been through and, and professionally and doing it. And I ended up joining uh, the logistics team meaning that we would be the team that would be called in early on a disaster to put the infrastructure in place to deliver food, to deliver medicines, and to deliver things that are needed downstream, including fuel and water if needed. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, I got a notice uh, very quickly uh, in uh, May that I, they needed people in Ukraine desperately. Uh, and I had made the decision and, and prayed with my wife about if that call came, uh, I was going to commit because I was looking for a way to, uh, to go all in uh, on the work that God was doing somewhere. Uh, and I wanted to leverage the expertise that he had blessed me with over the years uh, and, and provide that to people who were in need. And I could not find a better place to do that than in Samaritan's Purse. Tuesday, I got a call. Uh, they had a need for uh, supply chain people, logistics uh, in Ukraine, in Lviv, which is uh, the farthermost western city where the uh, emergency field hospital had been set up uh, uh, immediately. And on Tuesday, I got the call, and by Wednesday, I was on a plane to Ukraine. Uh, we arrived in Poland, in Krakow. Uh, because Poland is really the source for all the materials 
all the fuel, all the vehicles that are moving into Ukraine, uh, into the western part of the country. Uh, we stayed overnight and were on a bus through the border uh, the following day, and we uh, were arrived at the, uh, the, the emergency field hospital, which was in an underground bunker uh, up underneath uh, a mall. It was actually in the parking area where they had walled off with sandbags uh, the area where the hospital was, and it covered about two acres. Uh, what we saw in the beginning were uh, a flow of people that were coming in uh, from different places. Uh, the, the railway station was the key area where the refugees were coming into Lviv. There was a, a, a flow. We had known previously that there were about 8 million displaced people inside Ukraine that were looking for a place. Most of those would flee either to Kyiv or to Lviv, one of the two, because they were the safest places in the western part of Ukraine. Uh, so our, our flow of refugees into there was steady uh, all day long. You could see the, the people coming in. We would go out and actually visit and pull people in. The uh, hospital itself had an emergency room, had a triage, it had a full surgical suite and a ward. So it was a fully functioning class two type hospital. So we had a lot of activity from refugees that came into it. Uh, what we delivered basically in the way that it was set up and what was most difficult to really arrange was that we, we would receive medical supplies and food through Poland. Uh, we would receive them into Lviv and we would push those down to three different directions in Ukraine, about 75% going to the red zone, which is in the far eastern part of the country. Uh, what uh, we would do as far as medical, we received a plain uh, DC-8 that a Samaritan Purse has Every week, uh, with two lorry loads of, of medical supplies, we would unload those, sort them, and push them out. So the first thing I notice is just the sheer pandemonium and chaos of all this happening at once with new people that had never been exposed uh, to this particular place, to the processes and the ways that we needed to work together to get this done. It really indeed was a, a very confused situation. Uh, Samaritan Purse has the policy that every 30 days they turn the personnel that's on site uh, in Ukraine. So given that there's 120 to 150 people that are on the ground in Ukraine, every month there's 150 new people uh, taking up positions that they did not have before uh, and trying to get their jobs done. One of the qualities of the Ukrainian people is they are very resilient, uh, determined, tough people. Uh, they would not in the slightest ever yield to appearing to be intimidated by anything that the Russians can throw at them. So we would attend church services, uh, come out and immediately have an air raid. Uh, they would go into bunkers and their children would play on their scooters you know, they would play games, the all clear would come and they go back to their, their business as usual. It was so routine that they just incorporated uh, this new routine into their lives and they refused to stay underground. Um, they're just a, a very courageous, resilient, determined people um, who are a very religious people, by the way, um, that we really enjoyed uh, working with them, worshiping with them, and serving with them. 
What are the things that, that uh, were the primary tasks when you, when Samaritan's Purse brings you into a disaster is that your team has a mission. Our mission was to set in place a supply chain to deliver the food, to deliver the food, the medicines uh, downstream into what they call the red zone. That was our key. Uh, anyone in operations and supply chain, the very basis for doing that are just good solid structure and good solid processes, good information that allows you to manage that flow of vehicles, that flow of materials, that flow of fuel or whatever. And what was so striking for me uh, was the fact that none of that existed. Uh, it, it, was, it was a lesson for me that God taught me is that I was so focused on what to do. I wanted to take my expertise and do things. That's really kind of what guys do. I knew that's what I was trying to do, is just do things. I had 30 days, I wanted to do something. And, and God stopped me cold in my tracks. Uh, and he said, no, that's not your job to do. He said, that's my job to do. Your job is to focus on the people you're doing it with and love them and take care of them. And it was a moment and through many prayer sessions where that message just kept coming to me over and over and over again over the course of 30 days to the point when I got to the end of the tour, I was in this dark bunker at 4.30 in the morning, writing my notes in a journal that I kept every day. And I kind of finalized it. Finally, God spoke to me because I've been praying. I said, just tell me, you know, easily, you know, what is it that, that you want me to get out of this? Uh, and, and I wrote it, and I'd like to kind of read it if I may. said, so, this is my final morning. What has the Lord done? I marvel at it. Constant flow of vehicles, materials and people, constant turnover and lack of discernible structure and process. Yet he does great things through those who submit to this wondrous chaos. His love is shown through his people and his healing Ukrainians who continue to suffer physically, mentally, and spiritually as a result of this war. This was the key takeaway for me. We get so caught up in what we do we forget the people around us who are helping us do it. It was a very strong message from God. And one that I think that I've learned better prepares me, I think, for doing more work for Him. Focus and love the people you do it with, and you'll let God do the doing. Said so I was really very amazed, you know, when I got back. I was physically, mentally, spiritually, so exhausted. I really was having a very hard time just taking it all in. So, uh, like I said, so much happened so fast and so much uh, that it was hard to kind of bring it all together as to what the meaning of this was. And even after writing it out of my journal, I was still having trouble really understanding the message. And, and I can recall in service where we were singing and we started on uh, the Waymaker. Waymaker. I, you didn't notice that, and Kim didn't notice either, but I was weeping through that whole thing. And simply because it really said, this was his confirmation email to me about what he told me. He said, I am the Waymaker. I am the Miracle Maker. I am the Promise Keeper. 
I am the light and the darkness, and there was plenty of darkness there. My God, that is who you are. Thank you, Art Brown, for that amazing testimony to me and for all of us. You know, I think about his hopeful risk. See what he's done, and I wonder, good grief, what am I doing? I can't help but just wonder in the face of that kind of hopeful risk, in the face of that widow who was sorrowful, I, I can't help but look at them and go, am I really being the person God's called me to be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, that doesn't mean that we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. In other words, look, no pressure. I'm not trying to tell you what you have to do. We just want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy for it's by your own faith that you stand firm. We want to work with you. It's kind of an echo of what Art is telling us that you do what you can do, but you can't do it. Your role is to focus on being obedient and loving the people around you, and God will provide, right? That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, knowing all this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. That's what it comes down to is that we serve together, we work together, and we find joy in our faith. Listen, I, I wonder what am I doing? What am I doing? And, and I may not be able to go to Ukraine uh, to help there with the war relief effort, uh, and you may not either, but you can go across town. You can go right down to Tower Road for an hour here or there this summer. You can help out with Vacation Bible School coming up in a couple of weeks. You can help out and celebrate recovery by providing meals to people there. There's a ton of ways that you can get started. And maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have the big folded wad of cash, but maybe you can use your two mites this summer. That's why I keep pointing you to the QR code right there on your note sheet because right there, right there, you have access to all the opportunities to get a response out of Jesus that we've got this summer. You have access to all of it. You want to see Jesus respond. You want to discover the true joy, the true hope in him. Just use your smartphone and go on that QR code right there and find a spot to, to give just a couple of coins and see what God wouldn't do as a result. I know it feels too much. I know it feels too hard. I know you get too busy. I know it could be costly. I know you might miss out on something else if you do some of this. The whole objective of our life is to show that we can't, but he can, right? Because as Art just told us, last blank on your page, he is the way maker. He is the way maker. He will give you strength. He will make your time. He will provide when you got nothing. <music> <laughs>